Backs him down. Giannis into the lane. Giannis spinning. Fading shot. Up. Good for Giannis at the buzzer. Bucks win it. Welcome to Locked On Bucks. I'm your host, Kane Pittman, here with the founder of BrewHoop.com and longtime voice of the podcast, Frank Madden, as we get to the start of another week. And as you guys uh, may have seen on Twitter, uh, across the Locked On Podcast Network, different shows are looking at uh, memorable seasons in franchise history for us, and certainly for me, it seemed like a, a really, really good opportunity to go back to 2001. I know a lot of people that... Uh, listen to this podcast know that that was when I started watching basketball and and many many of our listeners will have uh, good and bad memories from that season the Bucks are incredible 52 wins they go to the Eastern Conference Finals game seven one game away from the NBA Finals there so we're going to go right through that Frank was at a playoff game at least one playoff game and and obviously uh, well and truly a, a Bucks fan by that point so we're going to be able to go through a bunch of things there I've got some guests lined up it should be a fun week but before we start, Frank, there was some some sort of, I, I don't know if you want to call it an update, but there was something, some some sort of news that came out regarding the NBA over the weekend. Uh, Windy did mention at time, he, he, he made a comment that ended up doing the rounds on the internet, as you would expect, saying that there's pessimism around uh, the NBA season restarting uh, this year. I, I guess... I would start by asking you, I mean, what do you even read into the comments that, that came from him uh, regarding the season? Because I think for the most part, me and you have, have both agreed that uh, I don't think there's going to be any decision really quickly here. No, that's why, um, I mean, like Adrian Wojnarowski and, and Bobby Marks did one that came out on Friday as well, which kind of was much more aligned with sort of what we've, I think, been hearing for a while just around, you know, the assumption that, yes, I mean, they're going to do whatever they can to restart a season um, in at the latest June, right? Um, and and kind of interesting as part of that conversation. I mean, they were still talking about, you know, the the possibility, such likelihood of like trying to have some nominal number of regular season games to begin with. Um, and I think that might just be partly just to get teams playing. I mean, it would basically be like a short preseason ahead. Of, you know, like during the last lockout. You know, you had like I think only three weeks from training camp to the first games. And I, I think they did play some couple preseason games. Um, so, you know, because the idea of obviously we're just starting in the playoffs after, you know, months of no basketball and literally where guys haven't even been able to um, train. I mean, we had, there was the conference call with Bucks players uh, in the last week where I think Giannis and Chris mentioned, I mean, they don't even have hoops at their houses, which I um, saw so some people say, well, how is that possible? But then you think about it, it's like, well, why would Giannis need a hoop? (laughs) He literally can get in uh, a professional, you know, training facility literally whenever he wants. Um, You know, you don't really think of, Oh, I need, I need a hoop in my driveway because of, uh, you know, if there's a lockdown of global pandemic, we won't be able to go to the gym. So, um, so yeah, it it was interesting kind of, kind of contrasting some of the different messaging we've been hearing. Uh, Trump had a conference call, I think with, with all the various league commissioners, um, and I think coming out of that, there was obviously kind of the rah-rah, like, you know, let's 
play play sports again when when we can type thing, which you know is not surprising. Like everybody, I mean, the commit the leagues obviously, um, every everybody wants to at some point restart if possible. But um, I think for me and 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 I I couldn't really make out. I don't know. Like Windhorse sometimes like makes, says stuff um, where it feels like it's you know serving some purpose to his sources <laughs> to his sources and this is maybe a little different because this isn't like a you know a player trade or, or a negotiation for like a new contract i mean this is a much broader thing um but to me i mean there's two dimensions there's public the public health dimension which is you know the kind of first thing that's going to dictate whether any of this even matters uh and then the second piece is just money and and how you manage to make the money work how much money is really at stake you know if you get to a certain point this summer um and uh you know there's only a possibility to play uh games in front of you know empty seats so it's really just a tv thing and then you know what is that what is that really worth to to the league um you know and how do you kind of carve it up and and is what you're getting uh worth 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 that right especially given it it kind of probably will disrupt um next season and again you can I mean, I, I think we've talked about this. You can always push back next season and sell an 82-game schedule, but that's obviously a whole different kind of can of worms. So, um, you know, I don't know if anything's really changed. Um, I think we were talking before the podcast. I mean, it's foolish to act like we know enough to decide anything at this point. Obviously, there's no date by which anybody can say, yeah, by then you'll be able to do this version of NBA basketball. We don't know, right? We're, we're all guessing. Um, you know, I think the best thing you can probably, the best precedent probably is looking into what's happening in other countries where, um, you know, COVID-19 kind of struck earlier. Um, you know, I think China looks like they're delaying, um, they're likely delaying the restart of the CBA season there, which obviously is is worth noting um, because that would be the first league that, they're the first league that suspended play and they're the first, be the first league that comes back. So that'll be an interesting precedent, you know, apply all the usual caveats to things happening in China and, you know, whether we can trust information about the illness itself there, but obviously, you know, whether the leaks restarts or not, that's a pretty black and white thing. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think uh, the public health piece and Mark Lazar alluded to this when this all started, like literally the day after the league suspended, he said, you know, a lot of this is going to be decided for the league. And I think, you know, again, um, it's, there's the federal component to it, the CDC guidelines, you know, what the federal government is saying about, uh, social distancing and, and when you could put, you know, again, bigger groups together, uh, to play, to play a game. Um, and then there's the component of, uh, obviously, uh, different cities. Right. And I think that's why, um, I think that's why it seems more and more likely if you do get something this summer that it might be a centralized tournament somewhere. Um, because just, you know, every city and state has had different responses to the coronavirus, um, you know, as far as whether different types of business have been allowed to stay open, whether um, you know, cities have been kind of, or states have been kind of fully locked down. Uh, it's it's kind of varied greatly city and state to state. And obviously, if you're a sports league, uh, especially if you're not playing in front of crowds, uh, which I think everybody agrees, you know, by June, it feels unlikely that uh, even, if, I mean, even if you wanted to play in front of crowds, like are, like, are people going to want to come to sporting events? You know, yeah. like, I mean, judging by pictures from certain parts of the country where, you know, people, where people are allowed to still go out, like, 
I mean, it still is happening. So, I mean, again, for a playoff game, could you, you know, if, if the government said like, yes, you could go to Pfizer Forum, I imagine you could still fill it up for a playoff game down the road, but it's such a weird hypothetical because it's just going to be such a different world, right? I think a lot of people will still be very fearful of, of doing that kind of thing, even at that point. So, um, so anyway, I think long story short, yeah, I mean, it seems like that we're certainly trending towards more of this idea of some sort of behind closed doors tournament. And if you're going to do that and you have all these complications from playing in different cities anyway, you know, does it even make sense to fly people around the country um, when they're not playing in front of fans? So I want to remind you guys about our friends at D1 Milwaukee, our very first local sponsor for Lockdown Bucks. D1 is the place for the athlete. You set the goal. We help you get there. All coaches are former D1 collegiate strength and conditioning coaches and athletes. They build science-based programs created specifically to improve athletic performance in a state-of-the-art facility. But given that times are a little bit uncertain right now, we want to move on to their summer camps that they have coming up for your kids. For 7 to 11-year-olds, they will focus on the fundamentals of athleticism. They will spend time each day developing running mechanics, working on balance and coordination, utilizing the fundamentals of movements. The coaches will create a fun, active environment for your young athlete to train in. And for 12 to 14-year-olds, they're going to give your athlete a competitive edge on their peers, focusing on linear speed and change of direction. Along with progressions in strength training, your athlete will develop extremely quickly with our coaches' expert instruction. In order to play with the best, you need to train with the best. A reminder that D1 is located in the Mech 1 Pavilions right off I-43. If you want to get more information, you can hit them up at d1training.com. Keep those summer camps in mind. D1 is the place for the athlete. You set the goal. We help you get there. But anyway, so there, there's the, the, that public health fees and how you even do it. And again, you're projecting forward like what sort of testing will be available at that point. Hopefully, testing will be very easy and plentiful and there won't be this rationing of testing that we're seeing now. Um, and hopefully you can rapidly test. We've seen kind of, there's been hints that this is maybe close, that they'll be, we'll be able to test people very quickly, which obviously would be important for putting on a tournament like this. Um, and then the money piece, right? Just, I mean, there's been, I think ultimately it's going to have to be a, a joint decision between players and owners. And, um, you know, we were kind of DMing kind of back and forth, right? You know, there's 2.6, between 2.6 and 3 billion is the kind of net, the the annual TV deal. Obviously, you know, you would expect that most of that is tied up in the playoffs, but let's just say, you know, 1.5 billion or so, or let's say 2 billion, let's say 2 billion of that. We'll be able to be really aggressive, right? And probably being maybe overly aggressive, but if 2 billion of that is, is tied to the playoffs, right? Or if the, the broadcasters say, all right, we'll give you back 2 billion of your TV deal. Um, if you actually put on a playoffs and, and not, you know, cancel a season um, in that scenario, you know, 50% go to the players, 50% to the owners. That's basically the agreement. Um, so each group's get basically a billion dollars um, to, to have some version of the playoffs, right? If you think it's, you know, 1.5 billion or 1 billion, whatever you want to say, you just split it in half and that's the total amount of money available to, to everybody. Right. So if there's 2 billion around, it's a billion for players. You got 400 some players roughly. So that's, you know, two, two point something million per player essentially. And again, not that it would get dished out evenly across all players, but you know, just to give you guys a sense of the kind of money that might be available, maybe it's a million, maybe it's 2 million per player on average. 
that's at stake, you know, from a, a team perspective, if it's a billion dollars, um, you know, divide that by 30 teams roughly. Right. And again, I'm, I'm oversimplifying here, but you know, that's, um, that's, that's real money. Right. I mean, that's, that's not nothing. That's 30, 30 some million dollars per team. Um, which in a year where obviously they're going to all be in the red and all have lost a lot of money, um, is, you know, are they going to turn that down because it feels like a little bit of a stretch to, to, you know, to say this is a champion. Right. And I think that's probably as a fan, that's probably my biggest concern is just how do you make sure that this tournament is something where, you know, especially as a fan of the bucks, I mean, if you win this damn thing, you want to feel like you're the NBA champion. Right. And maybe there's not going to be uh, in front of fans. Maybe it's, maybe you're not going to have a victory parade. So a lot of the kind of trappings of winning a title are, are not going to come with this, but, um, you know, you want to look back on it and feel like you actually won a championship. And I think that's probably the most frustrating thing about this is it does feel like we're heading towards something that even if there is a tournament or some type of version of the playoffs that will, we'll be getting something that isn't necessarily obviously as, as legitimate feeling as, uh, as, as what we're used to. And so that's obviously just something concerning. I, I don't know. I mean, what, what's your feeling? I think obviously it's sort of hard at this point to feel like confident in anything, but, um, I mean, are are you are you feeling any any differently than you did a few weeks ago? Um, maybe just for the reason that you know, I mean, obviously now uh, I'm back in Australia, but I, I do look at the the way that things are trending in the US, and you know, I, I think that this has all evolved so quickly for for everyone. I mean, when I left uh, Milwaukee, I remember saying to to people there. I might be back in a month. I might be back in six weeks. As soon as the season starts, I'll come back. Now, looking back, that was obviously ridiculous. Like, it was a ridiculous comment to make. But uh, I think that how quickly uh, this thing has evolved, as I sort of said, I mean, it, it makes you think that, yeah, the June timeline that was initially mentioned felt like a long way away. But now uh, it feels incredibly optimistic. So I think for all the reasons you outlined, particularly the money, I don't think that there's going to be a decision made quickly. But at the same time, uh, when when you look at the United States and, and a bunch of those areas that still look a, a month, six weeks away from potentially uh, being at the worst for, for this pandemic, then you have to say that June is, is very close now, uh, even as slow as time feels like it's traveling. And then it's like, well, where is the cutoff point? And, and as you sort of mentioned, I, I don't believe that there's any way there's going to be basketball games in front of fans uh, for this season. I don't know how long that's going to last moving forward. I mean, we know that without uh, some sort of vaccine, which is a long, long way away, I mean, it's going to be difficult to have public events. I mean, that's just this, just the reality of these things. And you think for Milwaukee specifically with something like, uh, you know, even Summerfest that gets moved back to August, I mean, you have to be sitting here and saying, I, I can't really see how that goes ahead. So while I don't think there's going to be a decision soon, and there's plenty and plenty of time for this thing to turn and, and these things to become a, a possibility, uh, I, I wouldn't say that I'm sitting here expecting that we're going to be watching basketball anytime in the next four or five, maybe six months. And, and then you just have to wonder if there's going to be a cutoff point for the NBA. And I, I think that that's what I'm watching now, but I, I don't, like I said, I mean, it, it just seems unlikely to me that there's going to be a decision made anytime soon. So when I hear that there's uh, pessimistic feelings coming out of league offices, I certainly understand it but I also know that they're going to be doing whatever they can to, to get some product on the floor and, and, and recoup some of this money. I mean, that's just the, that's just the way it is. So I, I guess it's just a, a big waiting game at the moment. And like you said, I think we're going to see uh, how other countries sort of try to bring these things back. And 
um, we'll see. I mean, Australia is still, uh, we're only just heading into winter. So they're saying that the worst months here could be July and August, which is a, a long, long way away. So, you know, while things are, are, are tracking reasonably well here in Australia, they might be a long way away from, from any type of uh, sporting events, even without fans as well. So, I mean, it's just wait and see right now. And there's not much else. Yeah, the, the only thing I would add, Ken, I mean, it's in the perspective on this, it's, it's kind of wild, right? And it feels like it's been an eternity since it started. It's been, what, three-ish weeks, three and a half weeks, yeah. something like that, since kind of the night where Rudy Gobert <laughs> yeah. tested positive and kind of, you know, at least all of this became real um, for the NBA in ways that it hadn't before. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I think, I, I mean, we knew it was going to have to get worse before it was going to get better from there, right? Um, you know, that that would kind of went without saying. Obviously, it has gotten worse. I think there's, you know, again, I'm, I'm not going to try to play epidemiologist or, uh, you know, public health expert here on this, this podcast. Obviously, the numbers have not been trending in a, let's say, a positive direction. Um, and I think the real question is, I mean, the different models suggesting when this will kind of reach its worst point um and and it's going to vary by region and obviously and we don't know how accurate that's going to be um but you know i mean it was it was we all anybody who like understood anything about this knew it was going to get worse before it got better and three weeks later probably that's still the case um and so i think just the question is when do you when do you reach that point and then you know when you're back on that upswing how how quickly can does it actually get better right um to the point and again i think the bar the bar for playing a tournament i think is much lower obviously than than all this stuff about playing in front of fans right and you know i i'm seeing way more stuff about wrestlemania and wrestling on my timeline (laughs) than i normally do because that's kind of one of the only things that's still happening um and obviously that's kind of a microcosm of like what you would need to do for any sporting event right to basically have like a controlled environment um, where you're testing and managing um, the participants. So, um, you know, so much is going to change in, in the coming weeks. Um, and, and hopefully it's for the better, not, not for the worse. But, but again, I, I totally agree. I mean, there's, there's no reason to feel like the league has to make a decision. I mean, if we're in June and it feels like, you know, testing is like we still don't have access to rapid testing and you know it, it feels like this is still accelerating getting worse stuff like that then yeah i mean i think at that point you start to feel very pessimistic um but uh you know again i think for what it is for what you're trying to do uh and given the idea that the league is already talking about for these sorts of kind of contained tournaments um that at least i think gives you a chance right and again i'm not saying that's a very appealing alternative and we can debate, I think, if, if and when that becomes more, a more tangible thing that's going to happen, we can obviously debate kind of more about the parameters of those. And, you know, if a best of three in the first round or best of five in the finals is like what that means for the legitimacy of, of the championship. Um, but, you know, again, we'll, we'll probably cover that. We can cover that another day. We can transition now to this uh 2001 season and there was a question this was the one question that was really left over from the mailbag but it seemed like one that we might spend a little bit more time going through and it also just seems like a fun way to to start this uh this week of talking about the 2001 bucks because it gives us a chance to talk about a number of the role players but it comes from brian kurth who asked the question who would you take in a seven game series between the 2001 Milwaukee Bucks and the 2020 Milwaukee Bucks. Now, 
Uh, I think that when you think about these types of questions, the obvious answer is, well, uh, I mean, look at some of the stats and, and it's going to stand out that uh, the game is completely different in 2020. And I was looking through some of this this morning and uh, the, simply the number that stands out is the, is the pace, right? Number of possessions uh, per 48 minutes. The 2001 Bucks played at, 90, at a pace of 92.1. The 2020 Bucks played at 105 possessions per 48. Uh, and that translated to all the stats. Points, the Bucks averaged 118.6. The 01 Bucks, 100.7. Three-point attempts per game, those 2001 Bucks, even with Ray Allen, Sam Casale, all these guys, they were only getting up 18 per game compared to 38-plus uh, for the current-day Bucks. And uh, that equated to five, uh, 6.8 more made three-pointers per game. So they're essentially 21 points up at the three-point line. I mean, uh, I, I don't know. I mean, how do you start to analyze this when you think about who would win? I mean, I think that the, the important thing to think about is how would those players on the 2001 roster transition to the modern game? And certainly with the guys at the top end of the roster, I'd have to say pretty damn well. Yeah, I mean, that's the hardest part about these types of like cross-generational comparisons, right? It's like, you know, first off... Um, well, whose rules are we using, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah. uh, again, like the, the the league in 2000 wasn't officiated exactly the same way that it was, uh, that it is today. Um, you know, like illegal defense stuff. Um, I think George Carl, uh, I think the joke was always that, that he played tons of illegal defense even when it was supposed to be illegal um, as far as like throwing stuff that verged on zones and things like that. So, um I think I would, I will say this, I think before we kind of tackle maybe the, the broader question of, of, you know, how would they actually fare against this current Bucks team? I think they would, if you, if you were trying to translate teams from the past into the current game, I think that team probably would have to um, change less than a lot of other teams. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, the, the most obvious thing is just the, the shooting that they had. Um, you know, you mentioned, okay, they didn't shoot a lot of threes. Um, but obviously, I mean, Ray Allen was one of the league's best shooters. Then he remained one of the best shooters throughout his career. Um, you know, if he was, you know, in, in today's game in his prime, he was 25 years old in that season. Uh, I mean, I don't know how many he would put up, right? Like eight, nine threes a game, 10 threes a game. You know, I mean, he obviously would shoot more. Um, interestingly, 5.7 threes attempted per game by Ray Allen in that season, just to give you guys, uh, you know, a sense of how many threes he he attempted um, on this version in this this year's Bucks. Uh, Chris Middleton's averaging 5.8 threes per game. However, Chris is playing 30 minutes per game. Ray played 38 minutes per game in that season. So um, you know, kind of just a an interesting kind of comparison. I mean, Giannis averaged more threes per minute than than Ray Allen did um, in that season. You know, which is sort of price beats volume. So um, yeah, but I think Ray obviously goes without saying that that he would translate. Big Dog did not. Big Dog and Sam Cassell did not shoot the three ball well that season. They were both around thirty percent. So I mean, it really was not a weapon for them that season. That said, those guys, you know, I think Sam is kind of he was a great mid range shooter, great long two shooter. Uh, I think his numbers would, you know, in in kind of a, a three point emphasizing league, I think his shooting would would you know be better, right? I think he would shoot more threes, um, and and I think you again that that would translate. I mean. He was on long twos that year. He shot 50%, Sam Cassell did, and he only shot 30% on threes. So um, so it's an interesting kind of comparison to, to kind of look at. I mean, you know, Ray, Big Dog, Cassell, those were all really good mid-range shooters. 
And obviously you'd have to kind of project out like how much would they translate to, to current game. And I think the other guy who jumps out as being kind of um, ahead of his time in that regard, at least from like a three point shooting perspective. I mean, Tim Thomas yeah. played 27 minutes, shot three and a half threes per game at 41% that year. Um, you know, obviously he never, he never panned out the way people wanted in Milwaukee. Um, you know, a lot of people obviously, including the Bucks, thought maybe he could be the, you know, heir apparent to, to, Rob, to Glenn Robinson when he got traded, traded. Uh, and it just never worked out. But, but I mean, you know, Double T stuck around the league for, for quite a while and, and became, you know, a higher volume three-point shooter, kind of embracing that, that stretch four role that, um, you know, I think he was certainly ahead of his time um, a bit when you kind of, you know, look at, again, comparable players in that era. Um, and, you know, it's kind of fun. It's funny to look at that Sixer team they lost to because, I mean, it really was Allen Iverson in a cloud of dust, right? <laughs> and you think about, like, translating both those teams into the modern NBA, modern tactics. Um, you know, I feel like the Bucks probably win that series easily if it was played today with the kind of current mindsets. But, um, but yeah, so I, I would say that. You know, I would say definitely a number of guys that would probably translate very well. Um, flip side, I mean, they had a lot of big guys, you know, like a lot of teams from that era. Um, they played a lot of big dudes. I mean, you know, Scott Williams and Irvin Johnson um, were starting in the together, I think, late in the playoffs, Yeah, which is now kind of absurd to think that like two, you know, kind of role-playing, more defensive big men would be starting together. You know, that just seems kind of funny. But um, yeah, I mean, as far as like the big men, I mean, Mark Pope started 45 games that year. Uh, Scott Williams, 31. Jason Caffey started 33 games. Irvin started only 19 games and played in 82, so he was mostly coming off the bench that year. Um, so obviously just, I mean, you know, yes, in the modern NBA, those guys would not play nearly as much as, as they did back then. But, um, but yeah, it's, it's an, interesting, uh, an interesting group. I mean, Lindsey Hunter as well. I mean, I, I just remember, like, and maybe I should just say this for some context. I mean, so I was a, let's see, that was my – uh, sophomore year of college. Uh, so I watched um, the playoffs, the first two rounds of the playoffs from school and then came back. Um, and and I didn't, wasn't able to watch every game on TV uh, at the time because I didn't have cable or uh, in college. We didn't have cable in college. Uh, and, um, and then I came back and I did go to game six, uh, which the Bucks won um, at home. So I, uh, yeah, it it was a weird, it's a weird time to um, to be a uh, to be a Bucks fan um, because again, like even though I was twenty years old, um, I don't remember it the way I feel like I should. Um, so it's kind of fun going through this exercise because it kind of brings back you know certain memories of of what that playoff run was like. I think the game seven against Charlotte in the second round, um, I feel like that's been been replayed. Wait, was it New Orleans? They were New Orleans at that. Were they New Orleans at that point, or were they Charlotte? They're I can't Charlotte. even remember. Yeah. Okay. So the, the Charlotte series was, um, was a great one. Right. And the Ray Allen performances in that series were, were awesome. I think that game seven against Charlotte comes back some, sometimes, sometimes it shows up, uh, on, on TV, but, um, yeah, I mean, Lindsey Hunter shot tons of threes, uh, in his, uh, in that season, I think he took five per game in the regular season, but I just remember, and I'm looking it up, um, and it, is very much validated. I just remember Lindsey Hunter couldn't make anything in the playoffs. Yeah. I think he was 37% in the regular season, 15% shooting from three in the playoffs, which is just like, Oh my God. And it's kind of interesting. He, he won 
two rings. He was part of the Laker team the next year, and then the Pistons team in 0304 that won a title. Um, so he won a couple rings, but he was a terrible, <laughs> terrible playoff three-point shooter uh, in all these years, um, which is is interesting because again, I mean, you know, he was a guy that uh, that actually was was a pretty pretty very certainly a good three-point shooter for um, for the Bucks that season, and he was a 36% career shooter, but. He was in the 20s, I think, what, what is he, way, way down in the 20s 26. in terms of his, yeah, 26% career from three-point range in the playoffs, which um, that's kind of one of those, you know, so I don't know if that makes him the, the proto Eric Bledsoe or something or what, he's <laughs> obviously a bench player, but, um, you know, his own, pretty much his only job was to defend and, and shoot threes, and um, the, just three-point shooting obviously was was pretty terrible. So, so yeah, I think, I think there's aspects of the roster that I think would kind of translate better than expected um, to kind of the current game. And then I think there's other other aspects, you know, just the big men and um, and again, just you know, you you know, let me say it this way: if if the Bucks, if this Bucks team went back in a time capsule or not a capsule into a time machine and shows up in 2001 to play this version, the the 2001 Bucks with their style, I don't care about rules, rule changes, things like that. Like, I don't think I don't think any team that's <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that yeah. Laker team, but but nobody else I think would really know what hit them, um, just because I think again just stylistically and just the depth and Giannis being so much better than anybody that was on that 2001 team, you know, maybe that team could win a game out of five, but um, you know I think they they would really kind of dominate just given not only how good this current version of the Bucks is, um, but also just again how far I think the game has evolved since then. Yeah, over the weekend, I've been going through and watching a bunch of these games again. I watched a, a whole lot of that series uh, against Charlotte, which we, we might get into a bit in more detail as the week goes on. But Lindsey Hunter that you spoke about, he hit a big three uh, late in the third quarter of that game seven when the Bucks were really, I mean, they were down against uh, Charlotte. And you, know, you could feel the anxiety was building uh, inside the Bradley Center. And, and when Hunter hit a, a big three as the Bucks were making the, the run that, that ultimately led them to win the game. I mean, the roof nearly blew off the Bradley Center. I think everyone was shocked and relieved that he actually hit a shot. But uh, the other thing that I found interesting watching uh, this team, you spoke about the mid-range uh, game where they, they really feasted. And it's interesting to look at Sam Cassell's numbers. I mean, this is a guy uh, that was getting up uh, you know, 15 shots a game and only one three-pointer. Even though, as you pointed to, a beautiful uh, jump shot from the mid-range, the only thing that, that that made me wonder, and again, I mean, I, I think ultimately, if we're realistically saying who would win a seven-game series, then yes, I mean, the, the, the current day Bucks would blow the doors off them. Maybe simply through uh, having Giannis and there being absolutely no one that could really stop him outside of uh, maybe maybe a hard foul, maybe a Scott Williams hard foul. But uh, the 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 fact that the Bucks did shoot. So the 2001 Bucks shot so much in in the mid range. It would be interesting. I mean, I'm sure you know Sam Cassell and, and and Big Dog and these guys would be able to get some pretty damn good looks in the mid range. We know that's what the these Bucks like to give up. Uh, those were the shots that those guys were specifically trying to get. Yeah, I mean that would probably be the best argument. Would be well, those Bucks were really good at shooting the shots that that Bucks team the, that the current Bucks would um, have given you and allowed you to to shoot all day long. Um, that said, I mean, I think back to like the Boston series last year, and I think part of the narrative going to that series was, well, the, the Celtics don't really get shots at the rim anyway. So go ahead, take it away. They, they're used to beating teams without getting shots at the rim, and obviously we know how, how that series played out. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think it would be it would be fun a fun kind of you know um, intergenerational matchup uh, for a lot of reasons. 
Um, but uh, yeah, I, I think certainly the, the mid-range thing, um, it, they would be an interesting test case just because they had so many guys who were really good at mid-range. Um, and obviously, again, if they played out the way I would expect with the Bucks being just blitzing them from three and in the paint, um, you know, it would probably be a pretty good uh, rebuttal to anyone who thinks that, you know, the mid-range is the lost art and it's still really valuable and all that, right? Um, also, I just, whenever I talk about the art of the lost art of the mid-range, I just keep having visions of Glenn Robinson missing that baseline <laughs> wide open jumper that could have won, I guess, was game five, I guess. Um, that just keeps kind of popping into my head. So anyway, some unnecessary flashbacks coming from from having to think about this series. Yeah, well, if anyone missed the, the chat with Jim Paschke last week, I asked him, you know, what was his maybe main memory that he still has of this season? And he, he said that shot as well. Uh, I think if you go back and, and everyone knows this, I mean, you watch uh, Big Dog during that season. I mean, that was automatic for him you know, and throughout his career as well. But I guess before we wrap this up, I mean, like I said, you were watching these games, as you sort of pointed to, uh, when you could and got to uh, the occasional game as well. When you think back, uh, outside of maybe specific moments that you said, you know, I mean, it, it, it was a while ago. It's difficult to, to remember everything. But what do you sort of think about that team? What's your overriding feeling when you think about uh, that 2001 Bucks team? Is it is it positive or negative? Because, uh, you know, ultimately they, they fell short, but still a, a pretty incredible run. Yeah, I mean... It's weird because it's it's amazing how kind of quickly they became so good and then how quickly it all kind of went to pieces, yeah. right? I mean, basically within, you know, basically a year, um, everything kind of fell apart. Um, and so, I, I don't know, when I think back on, on that time, and, and again, I was in college, so I wasn't, I wasn't in the state of Wisconsin, but I would always come back for Thanksgiving, Christmas, and then I came back at the end of the year and actually was able to go to an Eastern Conference Finals game. Um, I think the thing that really stuck out was that year in particular during the regular season, I, I still distinctly remember how loud the arena was and how, I mean, just, it was just a really electric feeling and not just in the, not just when I went to that playoff game, but just during the regular season, um, just the atmosphere, it was just kind of amped up and, um, I remember, I can still remember, I mean, they started this years earlier, but they used to run this graphic on the screen when they would try to get people to, to make noise, and it was the bark board, right? Glenn Robinson bark board. And, of course, this was just like a, you know, pre-staged graphic. It was basically like a, you know, would try to, it was supposedly measuring the, the volume in the arena or whatever, but obviously it was just, you know, <laughs> it was not measuring anything. But, um, you know, it's kind of one of those funny things that you, fans react to, you know, a graphic on the, on the screen more so than anything that happens in a game often. Um, and the loudness in the arena when the bark board would come on that year, it really like, I just remember this feeling of like, wow, this is just different. This is really just different. And I'd been, you know, my family got season tickets in 92. So, I mean, I'd been going to games throughout kind of my middle school, high school, and now into college. I mean, I'd been going to games for, for quite a while at that point. And it, it just really felt different. And um, I remember, you know, George Carl would come out of the, of the tunnel in pregame and get like a standing ovation, like every game it seemed like. Um, there was really an electricity around that team and a belief in, you know, certainly George Carl and the players um, in a way that just hadn't, you know, hadn't been around before. And so I don't know. I mean, 
the kind of self-destruction almost like, again, I was in college when that happened as well. Uh, and I was, so I was a bit further away from it. And then, you know, really I, I kind of, I feel like I didn't really kind of rekindle, get back into it until probably the year before the Bogut draft. That's when I got, uh, NBA league pass when I was, you know, now living, um, and working, uh, out, out of college. Uh, so I don't know. I mean, like the, the kind of tail end and, and when everything fell apart, to some extent, I was almost like a little divorced from what was happening to a degree. Like, I don't remember the day-to-day of following the team or going to games or watching them on TV every game because I, I couldn't at that point because I, I wasn't local to Milwaukee and I couldn't watch the games until, like I said, 04 or 05 again. But, um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's sad, but it was almost like it was such a – it all happened so quickly that, I don't know, like I was almost wasn't even like used to it, if that makes sense. And I didn't, I didn't think that they could win the title that year. Like, I, I, I don't know. Like I, I didn't think they were going to beat the Lakers. I know they beat the Lakers twice that year in the regular season, but just, I don't know. Just, I just didn't feel like that was going to happen. Um, and so in a weird way, I mean, it was disappointing, obviously losing to the Sixers the way they did and going all the way to game seven and having chances early in the series. But um, I don't know. I still have like, you know, especially because for so long, that's all we had as Bucks fans, right? Like, that was the only 51 season that I had seen up until, you know, a couple of years ago. Um, it, I still look back on it fondly, I would say. And, um, you know, Glenn Robinson was my favorite player as a kid. Obviously, like Rayon and, and Sam Purcell as well. So, I mean, I, I had obviously look back fondly on that being kind of the peak of their time in Milwaukee. But um, it is still, I don't know, to some extent, it's it, it's all sort of also impacted just by it's been 20 years. Right. And just my memory of so much of, of what's happened has kind of, you know, become, become fuzzy. Um, so certainly you watching more games recently of them than I have um, probably gives you a lot more legitimacy in terms of remembering some of the, some of the details. Yeah. It's, it's been fun. Like I said, and, and certainly, I mean, you always hear about it, uh, the Bradley center uh, during that time, but even watching some of these games back on YouTube, it is insane how loud how loud it was getting in the Bradley Center I, I wish I could go back and, and be in there to experience that it was an incredible uh, atmosphere and we saw uh, even tonight Scott Williams was on Twitter he's been he's been pretty active on Twitter lately uh, about this era he was tweeting about uh, the crowd in the Bradley Center last week he was tweeting with Giannis about obviously the suspension that uh, I'm sure we're going to get to at some point, but uh, that was a really fun question, Brian. I, I you know, I'll, I'll, it's, you know, in the end, it's, it's difficult to, you know, really come up and make a, a debate to say that a team from 20 years ago could beat a team now just with the stylistic changes. But it's fun to, to talk about some of the guys that maybe would fit in today's basketball. So uh, this is just the start. Like I said, we're going to be talking about uh, the 2001 Bucks all week long. Uh, hopefully, have some pretty cool guests on, on the podcast and some fun conversations uh, remembering back uh that season that was and like you said uh, at the time maybe we didn't know but a, a very very rare uh 50 win season for the bucks so uh another thing i have to mention uh, i spoke about it last week but we've got the new podcast on the network chad ford is on board uh with his big board podcast that's just going to come out once a week obviously uh, guys are still declaring for the draft and we don't know when that's going to be or how they're going to do it but uh the bucks have got a, a reasonable pick with this indiana paces pick right now it would be pick 19 so it's worth listening to and worth keeping an eye on that conversation there but uh frank for now uh we can leave it there and and kick this back off in, in the coming days so uh like i said if you wanted some more conversation go back to listen to the one with paschke last week 
and uh, and send us through your memories and ideas at the Locked On Bucks Twitter page. But for now, for Frank and myself, Kane Pittman, we'll speak to you guys tomorrow.